Today, we are joined by another father and son doctor team and discuss their new book, Brainwash. In their important new book, the doctors Perlmutter explore how modern culture threatens to rewire our brains and damage our health. They say living in today's 24-7 hyper-reality poses serious risks to our physical and mental states, our connection to others, and even to the world at large. In our conversation today, we explore how we are being mentally hijacked and what we can do about it so that we can begin to think more clearly, make better decisions, reconnect again with others, and develop healthier habits. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that's more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. Also, check out and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel, which features video versions of our episodes plus extra videos you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other health experts at HealthyDirections.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Be Healthistic. Today, we have a very special show. We have another father-son doctor team with us today. It's Dr. David and Austin Perlmutter. Dr. David Perlmutter is an internationally known board-certified neurologist, number one New York Times best-selling author, and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. His preventive approach to brain health focuses on the role of lifestyle changes and wellness and longevity. In this program, he's joined by his son, Dr. Austin Promutter, a board-certified internal medicine physician who focuses on helping others to improve decision-making and quality of life. Together, they join forces to focus on ways to create sustainable joy, health, and meaning in the modern world. In their new book, Brainwash, which the doctors Promutter co-authored together, they say that our brains have been hijacked by the modern world. They have been literally rewired to keep us hooked, unhappy, and unhealthy. We'll find out more from this other father and son doctor duo during this engaging interview. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. This is great. Hey, Drew, I, I wanted to just kick this off and uh, mention the Dr. David Perlmutter. I've known him for years, and I knew his dad was a neurosurgeon. But when I read the book Brainwash, you know, when I when I read this book, David, I never knew you did a year in neurosurgery residency. I mean, that was something new. For, I mean, you, you never mentioned that to me before. I, you know, the, the right answer here is you never ask, but uh, yeah, I did a year <laughs> know, of general I, surgery. I, Actually, um, I did a year of neurosurgery research. I did a year of general surgery and then a year of neurosurgery uh, as well. It wasn't really what I thought I would want to do. I, I appreciated the one-on-one uh, type of interaction, which was great, but I wanted to be touching more people. I wanted to be have a broader reach. And so I felt that neurology through then outreach would be a, a better choice for me and certainly glad that I made that choice. I mean, I, I, I think that there are wonderful neurosurgeons out there doing great work. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. 
Well, that's amazing. You're a well-trained dude. I'll tell you that, you know, surgery, medicine, neurology, neurosurgery. I mean, our listeners are, are really going to enjoy this show, especially with this father-son combination. This is a first for us, by the way. We've never done it, this a father-son before. So this is numero uno. There you go. Well, Austin, do you want to share a little bit about what it's like to, to have your father as a mentor in the field? Sure. So, you know, I think this is something that obviously you can probably speak to as well, but it's pretty unique situation to not only have somebody in your family be in the same field that you're going into, but also to have them be such a widely known and respected person within the field. So there's always the the big shoes, but I think that, you know, more than anything else, what my dad has been able to do for me is to, to demonstrate that there is a way of creating a path through the, the medical field that enables you to be consistent with what you actually believe and not just kind of towing the, the traditional line of here's how medicine is practiced and this is the best that we can do. He has done this through his entire life and not just as a father, but as a person within this space, I think proven that you know, there's more to this than just prescribing medications. There's more to this than abiding by the traditional structure of how medicine has to be practiced. And so I'm very thankful for that. In addition to all the more traditional father-son interactions that we've had over the years. And what was it like growing up under his household? I mean, did you do these things all throughout eating good foods, meditation, all these lifestyle changes, or are these sort of, as he evolved in his practice, they come on board later on? Definitely the second one. Uh, I would say that it's another of the the aspects of my dad's personality and of his uh, actions that I really appreciate is that he's willing to change perspectives and evolve as the data changes. And you know, to that end, I think we both benefit from having my mother's influence because she's always been very grounded as it relates to eating the right types of foods and to um, having anti-stress techniques and to doing the meditation. And really, I think she was the principal meditator in our family for a long time. And then in my dad's case, you know, as, as he, the years went on and he uh, read the literature and experimented with new techniques, he was really able to change his dietary preferences and to change his approach to these anti-stress techniques to find what worked for him. And again, also what was being substantiated in the literature. And then I, you know, through osmosis and being in that house, had the benefit of learning from both of them. And that has, has obviously led to me being somewhat of an amalgam of both my parents' influences. When I was reading your book, there was a section in there that you and my son Drew were strongly connected with. It was actually being in the forest. I mean, both mm. of you guys have spent time in the forest. I mean, uh, Drew, you should talk about your experience real briefly. But it really struck me because... You were talking about the forest as being a savior in time. And um, then you supported the research with it. You talked about being in nature, how it increases your natural killer cell activity in the body and improves your immune system. You also mentioned how the adrenaline uh, went down in the urine at the same time as being in nature. Drew, I, I would just comment briefly how you spent time in nature. I mean, that's amazing where you really learned a lot about medicine from being in nature. Well, I think it's about really what, what David was saying in the book with disconnection syndrome. I and mean, we're so disconnected in this modern world, even though right now we're feeling connected 
on this podcast. It, it through technology and such, we've really become very disconnected. And nature and being in nature is one way to, to reconnect again. And um, recently, I did a, a four day uh, wilderness um, fast, actually in the mountains last last September. And that was a very profound experience because when you spend four days alone in nature fasting, things happen to you that you normally would never experience in your normal day-to-day life. And I think that people need to experience more connection with nature. And it doesn't have to be a four-day wilderness fast like I did. You can just go out for a walk in your neighborhood. You can go uh, for a stroll in the woods or a bike ride or even a swim for that matter and connect with the elements because when you do that, you ultimately connect to yourself. And that's really why we're here on this planet. Yeah, and actually Austin mentioned in the book, and David, you as well, about something as simple as the magnificence of a sunset. You know, it's amazing. I just moved in Florida, David, because I, I miss the sunsets and I realize how healing the sunsets are. Uh, just, you know, watching the sunset at night, I think is so mystical and so calming of an overactive, let's say sympathetic nervous system. It's, it's really cool to be in that visual space where you're watching the sun go down. And, and it, you know, if you see the green flash, that's incredible as well. But just connecting with the sunset. So I, I, again, Austin, I, I really resonated with some of these aspects of nature that you brought out into the book. It was really cool. Well, I think there are so many things that we could talk about on those points. And I'd just like to say the sunset is it's obviously a, a, a big popular thing. In Florida, people come to the beach on the West Coast for the sunset. And on the other coast, they come for the sunrise. And you know what I think what's great about it is that it does allow us to begin and end the day with something more concrete and it gives us that circadian reset such that we're able to know in our brains, I mean, on an unconscious level, now is when I need to start winding down in the case of sunset or on the other end with sunrise, now is when I need to start ramping up and getting ready for the day ahead. But what I like about it too is that if you do it regularly, it enables you to experience this magnificent nature that can show you why you don't need to spend all your time looking at a screen. It's, I think, often the case that we outsource our entertainment to screens when we could be doing that with nature. And nature has different effects than screens do. So to then segue into the point you were making about sympathetic versus parasympathetic activation, I think that is one of the central mechanisms by which nature is so good for our physical and our mental health. And part of that is that when we're in nature, we're not in the modern world. You know, We're not engaging with our email. We're not on our computers and watching TV, and we're not walking around in a, an air-polluted downtown where these are things that have been shown to increase sympathetic activation and subsequently increase cortisol levels, induce chronic stress, and all of the subsequent problems that occur with our health versus nature, which is, again, the absence of those things. But there are these other chemicals called phytoncides, which are these volatile organic compounds that are actually secreted by certain types of trees and plants. And it's been shown that those without any sort of visual stimulation are capable of inducing some of these positive benefits in our health. And so the the last point I'd make here, um, so yes, absolute endorsing, uh, or I'm absolutely endorsing nature. It's been incredibly helpful for me and my own physical and mental health, but I think it's beneficial for everyone, is that our health is a reflection of the environment that we are living in. And so we're not separate from what's happening around us. And we see this type of thing with air pollution, which has been associated with not just uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, but also with more impulsive decision-making. We know that those chemicals 
from air pollutants, or I should say air pollutants themselves, are interfacing with our bodies in such a way that it influences our thought processing. And one of the ways it does that is by binding to receptors in our lungs, because our lungs actually have this massive surface area that has about you know 30 or so square meters of surface area that is exposed to actually 30 to 80, depending on who you do talk to, the outside environment. And I think it's the same thing with our gut. It's the same thing with our skin. When we're going out into nature, those barriers are being exposed to what is happening in the environment around us. And when that environment happens to be a healthy, natural environment, that is actually programming your body and brain for more healthy thinking and for general health. And so not to take this too far, but if you consider the uh, relative increase in cases of diseases, allergic type diseases in children who grow up in more urban centers versus more rural centers. And you think about how those kids, when they grow up in farms, actually have exposure to more nature, to animals, to bugs in their environment, and how that then programs their immunity towards a more healthy state. I think that same thing is happening as adults when we go out into the natural world. We are receiving signals from nature, which through our, our bodies, through our nervous system, as well as through our barriers, like our lungs and our gut, are basically enabling us to create a healthier version of ourselves. And that then translates into lower rates of anxiety and depression and heart disease and diabetes, all the things that we you know, are looking to get out of nature. And just taking that one step farther, Austin, uh, I, I, and you mentioned this in the book where um, if nature enhances empathetic behavior, then the absence of empathy is narcissism. And, in, and again, I, I studied as a psychotherapist for years. And the problem with, you know, large aspects of our society today is the narcissistic behavior that a lot of us uh, run into. And we have narcissistic character structures as well. But uh, again, uh, nature is one way of overcoming overzealous narcissistic behavior, which sure. can have a serious downside in our health because it, it, it allows us to act in a false self and, uh, and it creates sympathetic overdrive, which again, you know, burns up not only the, the autonomic nervous system and, and it has effect on dementia in the brain, which I want to get into subsequently, but, but also it has a serious impact on the heart as well. So um, yeah. again, I was really excited when I read your book. I, I have to tell you, I, I, this was a great book. Well, <laughs> I, really I, I appreciate this. that. Let, let me speak to that narcissism piece. And what I like to look at is, you know, the more general sense of what does it mean to express empathy versus to be narcissistic. I mean, at the very end of the day, narcissism is looking after yourself and putting yourself over other people. Right. And I think that, you know, what happens with nature is you can't help but experience the connectedness to the entire world. So it's not you and then there's nature, it's you are part of nature. You go out there and you experience the awe that comes from looking at a, a mountain range or the ocean or a river. And that can be daunting to people. But what we see is when people have that experience of awe, they actually are more likely to engage with pro-social behavior towards other people. They're more likely to demonstrate empathy towards others. And incidentally, they're more likely to demonstrate empathy towards nature. So to engage in behaviors where they're going to look out for nature in a scenario or a simulation where they have to decide whether to cut down a bunch of trees or to leave them alone. And so I think that, you know, looking at some of these major themes in what's going on in the world today and trying to frame those through the lens of either empathy or narcissism. And, you know, I've said this before, but 
the biggest threats that humanity faces today are basically a result of empathy uh, deficiency. And what right. do I mean by that? Well, think about climate change, right? I can't be looking out for other people if I'm uh, basically using up all the resources and not planning for tomorrow. I can't really be expressing empathy towards others if I'm considering launching a nuclear warhead at another country. These things just aren't compatible with the idea that we're all in this together and that we have to look after each other. So I think that um, in general, we need to look at anything we can do to increase empathy and not just because it's better for the planet as a whole, but because it's better for us. People who have higher levels of empathy have better friendships, have better relationships. There's no surprise there. You need to care about somebody else in order to have a strong relationship with them. I think there are these tendencies in our society right now for people to, I would say, I think revert to um, these more kind of narcissistic me first uh, viewpoints in the world. And that is in large part fueled by higher levels of stress because when we're experiencing a lot of stress, our vision constricts. We're not able to see the bigger picture. And that's actually an adaptive response because as you can imagine, if you're out there on the prairie and you are worried about the next five or so minutes of survival, you can't be thinking about what's happening back home at your tribe that's miles away. You can't be thinking about planting for the next season. You can't be thinking about what's best for the planet. You need to just preserve your life. But when we're under conditions of chronic stress, as is increasingly the case in the modern world, we're no longer able to see that bigger picture. And we're just thinking about self-preservation, which I think is really the most prevalent form of narcissism today. So, so our goal has to be to get outside of this really short-sighted viewpoint and to start looking out for other people. Because again, it's not just good for them. It's not just good for the planet. For the planet, it's good for our mental health. We feel better about ourselves when we're looking after somebody else. And my dad and I say, which is kind of an interesting thing, it's a selfish behavior to care for others. Why is that? It's because you are going to feel better when you do that. So everyone wins in these situations. And it's just a question of, are we willing to make that change? Or do we want to cling to this messaging, which we've all been fed, which is, You've got to look after you. It's all about success on your own. You've got to do better than other people and always compare yourselves to the Joneses. But yeah, I think, I think there are better ways of approaching this. One of those ways to get back to the original point is through nature exposure. Yeah. And you also mentioned generosity, which can boost the immune system as well. So that, again, was another really great point in the book. Yeah. It doesn't really take that much. I, I think that it, it still comes back to this uh, idea of sympathetic versus parasympathetic tone, which is that when you're engaging with more pro-social and generous behaviors, that is a more parasympathetic activity. Sympathetic is, is tighter wound. It's looking into the, the next little bit. And I, I do kind of associate that with more selfish behavior, not because it's, you know, some sort of terrible thing. It's because that's the way that set of, um, or of the autonomic system has been designed. When you're sympathetic, that is telling you to shift your focus towards the short term. It's telling you, we're not going to worry about what's happening a year from now. We are going to survive and I'm going to get my genes through the next five or so minutes so that we can keep this DNA going. So that's why I think it's so important to understand that, you know, messaging in the modern world that has been set up to activate our sympathetic nervous system and get us to make decisions is going to be those messages that convince us we need the short term fix. Now, whether that's buying a new car or the, the latest clothes or the latest phone, I mean, these are just messages that are teaching us 
you are living in a place of scarcity, you need to be acting out of fear, and you need to be making choices that are going to ensure your your survival for the next five to 10 minutes, as opposed to what's overall best for you years from now. And David, this sort of connects us to where your part in the book, where you said, it has become clear that disconnection is at the core of what's keeping us from truly embracing health, longevity, happiness, and contentment. These goals are attainable. Can you speak to the whole disconnection piece and what that's doing to our brains, the hijacking that's happened? And may I use the title of your book, Brainwashing? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, when people see the title of the book, they're, they're kind of wondering what's that all about. But you, I think you begin to get it as you get into the book and you see what we're trying to develop here. Yep. We're trying to really wipe the slate clean and let people, A, realize what has happened and then B, regain control. And it centers on this notion of disconnection syndrome. And there are multiple levels that we use the term. Uh, we use the term from a very physiologic perspective, neurophysiologic perspective, to represent a disconnection from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex and back. In other words, there are these two important areas of the brain that we really explore quite deeply, much of what Austin has been talking about as it relates to empathy or lack thereof and narcissism and impulsivity really is centered on, among other areas, this primitive area of the brain, uh, which is the amygdala, versus a more sophisticated, uh, much more sooner evolved uh, part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex that is an area that is involved with our ability to engage in compassionate, empathetic behavior, uh, to plan for the future, and to make decisions that are much uh, less impulsive, but more in line with looking at as much information as is available that can uh, not only guide us in terms of the uh, acute decision-making process, but can embrace the notion as to what may the consequences of our decisions made today, what those might look like tomorrow, next week, uh, next month, and how they will affect me, but also how they may, may affect everyone with whom I interact, as well as what Austin was talking about earlier, how it may even affect the planet. So the impulsivity center, if you will, or the impulsive behavior that seems to emanate from the amygdala and other areas uh, is, an, uh, is an activity that is kept, let's say, in check or governed by an overriding input from the prefrontal cortex. And the more that we foster that connection the more the adult is in the room to be involved in uh, the decision-making process. What tends to lock us out of the input from that prefrontal cortex are so many of the uh, influences that we uh, experience now in our modern lives, like not getting enough sleep, distancing ourselves from nature, uh, fanning the flames of tribalism based upon the social media sites that we gravitate towards, the fear that's inspired day in and day out by the, the news channels, uh, the types of diets that we engage, which are by and large highly inflammatory, all of these inputs and others uh, tend to segregate this governing prefrontal cortex from the amygdala. And ultimately the default state is one in which the amygdala kind of rules the day and we do become more impulsive more self-centered, less empathetic, less compassionate, and less able to make decisions that look at benefiting others as well and thinking towards uh, the future. That said, 
the problem with that scenario is then those decisions not to get a good night's sleep, not to eat foods that we know are lower on the inflammatory scale, not to engage in activities that are compassionate and benefit other people, the more we do that through neuroplasticity, the more we wire a brain that locks into this part of, uh, of subservience away from uh, the prefrontal cortex and being, as I said, subservient uh, to running our lives from this program uh, based upon fear uh, emanating from the amygdala. Now, uh, it's, it's true, and we brought it out aggressively in the book, that to a very significant degree, the world is conspiring uh, to keep us in that state because it benefits others for whom our attention and certainly our pocketbooks have great interest. So even uh, to the, the very obvious extent of the pop-up ads, the clickbait that is so pervasive on our online experience, dragging us away, uh, the, the pervasive nature of the threatening uh, news, uh, we're all very well aware that there's some bad things going down in the world right now. But to be bombarded by that 24-7 does nothing more than fans the flame of fear. And that, through neuroplasticity, makes us perceive then that the world is a very threatening place and uh, really enhances our disconnection. So that is the physiological or pathophysiologic nature of disconnection syndrome on a broader scale. Uh, what we developed in the, in the book is how then this fundamental disconnection uh, broadens itself uh, to a place of uh, our disconnection from each other, our disconnection from nature, our disconnection from the uh, salubrious nature of our genome, wanting us to be healthy, trying as best as our DNA can uh, to express itself in ways that reduce free radical mediated stress, that reduce uh, inflammation, that creates higher levels of BDNF to give us a better brain. That's what our DNA should be doing. It's what allowed us to survive the past 800 to 900,000 years, however you want to define our being as human, uh, to get to this place, to have this conversation today. But we work against that. We disconnect from the signaling of our DNA by virtue of the choices that we make, uh, many of which are perpetrated upon us by these extrinsic influences over which we do have some control when we finally recognize uh, those influences. Our purpose in Brainwash was to call them out. That's mm -hmm. step one. Once they become visible, then the reader can realize that these things are happening and can make plans, make adjustments to recontextualize these experiences such that they don't uh, aren't so insinuated in our day-to-day -day uh, decision-making processes. So, so David, just to bring this down a notch to our listeners, if the amygdala is sort of stuck in a sympathetic overdrive mode, and that overdrive mode has to do with reward, impulsivity, and emotion. When I was reading your book, uh, you were talking about fragrances crossing the blood-brain barrier that could be an antidote to this hyped sympathetic tone. And as soon as I was reading it, 
it brought me back to the Bach flower remedies that I've used for years, you know, as a cardiologist, because a lot of these flowers had to do with fear or happiness or com compulsion or whatever it is. Can either you or Austin connect a dot where you can take in a fragrance and the fragrance can tame, and that's the word, tame down an overactive sympathetic amygdala, which has to do with, again, emotion, reward, and impulsivity, like you just mentioned. I'll be absolutely happy to, to tackle that. And, you know, Austin mentioned earlier these interfaces that we have with our environment. The uh, two, uh, you know, doubles tennis court interface that our gut offers uh, with the environment in terms of its size. And Austin uh, talked about the uh, uh, 30 to 80 meters squared of the lungs. Uh, and, you know, the visual input that we get, the auditory input. And I think the olfactory input has been uh, not as well appreciated, but in fact, uh, the olfactory input is speaking to our deepest brain. Uh, the input we get, the, the ke basically chemical inputs uh, to our very deep brain centers are strong, are the first memories that we have, and they are probably... Uh, the strongest activators that we have of emotion in terms of the environment and uh, are also deeply involved in regulating immunity. And I think that, you know, getting back to the discussion about Drew and Austin and nature uh, and Austin mentioning about these phytoncides, you know, there is a lot going on in our nature experiences that is speaking directly to, you know, our emotional brain, our limbic brain, and as such having a powerful uh, role to play in terms of immune regulation and how fascinating it is uh, moving forward that one of the, uh, I, I guess I'm going to be the first one to blow out the candles here, one of the uh, common experiences with COVID-19 infection, first off, is loss of olfactory function. Think about that. And what we are now seeing is in post-mortem analysis of the brain, several areas of the brain uh, do seem to be involved in some patients. One of them uh, being the olfactory bulbs. Those are the, the areas where chemical information from the environment comes in and ultimately enters the brain. So what is happening to us moving forward to, you know, as a legacy of this infection, might well be the loss of a very, very powerful, as you well stated, uh, input into our immune function, into our awareness of what's going on around us. You know, this is one of the cardinal senses that we have. And to uh, lose that is really associated with uh, immune dysfunction, but also brain dysfunction in general. One of the earliest indicators of a declining brain from a cognitive perspective vis-a-vis -vis Alzheimer's is decline in olfactory function. And I think it's very interesting that uh, one of the screening tests being done for people, uh, for example, going into a doctor's office right now, uh, in addition to taking their temperature, is checking them for olfactory function. Really well said. So the nose is a direct connection to the brain. Uh, that's right. And, you know, that can be uh, harvested for the delivery of medication. You know, there's certainly uh, protocols for giving insulin uh, through nasal inhalation uh, because there's a direct pathway through the, the skull, an area called the cribriform plate, 
right into the brain. So this is uh, being looked upon as this uh, untapped resource in terms of delivery system for for active pharmaceuticals into the brain. I mean, you know, people snorting cocaine knew about that a long time ago. Well, David, can, can we speak to what's happening currently with, with COVID-19 and, and even mask wearing? Because as we're talking about this, I'm finding that I have to wear a mask in the office when I'm with patients. And I used to practice five element acupuncture where I, I needed to really smell odors in the room to really get a, a, an accurate diagnosis for someone. Um, I, I'm finding that it's interesting that I'm, I'm losing the olfactory component with my patients now. I don't, I don't have that access to it. Obviously, we absolutely need to be wearing the masks. Where are you at with this whole mask wearing and not being able to see people's lips and facial expressions? And, and what, what is that doing to our brains right now? It's a very good question, uh, Drew. And I would say that beyond that, you know, the sterility now of the air that we breathe might be proving detrimental. We know that when we are within three feet of another individual, that we are aggressively participating in their exhaled microbiome. Uh, but that was from another time. Mm. And we now realize that what other people may be exhaling uh, could be life-threatening for us. It's just the way it is. So uh, I, I'm a, a big proponent of getting your mask off as much as you can when you're out for a walk, when you're out for a jog, when you're out in nature, provided you're not near anybody. But by all means, wearing a mask is not only protecting you to some degree, but it's an empathetic gesture. It's saying this is more than just about me and my risk for getting this virus. It's about me not knowing I could have been uh, exposed, I could be infectious, and I care about you, the next person. So, you know, when we see people say that I refuse a mask because it's my right to not wear a mask, well, yeah, it is, I guess, you're right, but it's not your right to threaten other people. So in a very real sense, uh, it's a lot like secondhand smoke and we have to frame it in, in that way. It's, I, I'm hopeful, a transient uh, sort of um, a level of discomfort uh, that we're experiencing that will go back to sharing other people's microbiomes. But I think it's deeply important right now that people get their arms around it. And, and if I just may extrapolate a little bit more, you know, our parents and grandparents, um, they had to make significant changes for, let's say, four years at a time during World War II. Uh, gas was rationed, food was rationed, uh, lots of things happened. Uh, and, you know, in this case, we've been at this now, you know, for what, four or five months. And it, in all likelihood, it's going to be a lot longer. So I think we'd all like to be done with it. That's the the amygdala maybe governing our desire to get back to the beach, get back to social interaction, going back to the bar. That's the amygdala. I want it. I want it now. The rest of the world be damned. But when the prefrontal cortex is brought online, then we're able to look at scientific data. And beyond that, we're able to understand that our actions are really perhaps the most important tool that we have for limiting uh, this experience and demonstrate our concern for other people beyond ourselves. So I think in a very real way, we're seeing this disconnection syndrome play out uh, in, in various parts of the world where people are more connected uh, than others. We see, in other words, doing the thing, doing, uh, wearing the mask, socially distancing, washing their hands versus areas of the world that say, you know, the heck with that, we're just going to get on our lives and I'm not going to be bothered by this where rates are skyrocketing. So it's a really graphic example of acting 
uh, with the adult in the room versus saying, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do now. Yeah. And I thought the the timing of your book, I know it came out before COVID-19, but as I was reading it, I said, everyone needs to be reading this book right now because it applies more than ever during this time, this rough time in, in our lives. Well, you know, one of the other pearls in the book, you're telling people to avoid sugar because sugar produces uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease and certainly, ca- uh, you know, cardiovascular disease. But again, sugar is one of the big factors in uh, cutting down our immune response. You know, it's a big factor in COVID-19 as well. I mean, the less sugar we use, uh, the, you know, the better we are. I mean, I mean, sugar has an impact on white blood cells. Uh, it can stifle their activity. So I think the avoidance of sugar and on page 108, you taught me something again. I didn't see this recent research, but basically, Austin and David, you talked about the 2019 Harvard study, uh, which showed that if you took in uh, two or more soft drinks a day, your incidence or your risk of heart disease and sudden death uh, or dying from heart disease went up 31%. I mean, that's something, again, that's a pearl in the book. You can take that to the bank. So, uh, uh, and, and David, you and I always have agreed on diet. And in fact, uh, in your book on page 126, when you were talking about the brainwash diet, my God, it's the perfect cardiovascular diet as well. So, the- so it, it shouldn't be surprising that the diet that we are recommending, uh, lower in refined carbohydrates, dramatically lower in ultra-processed foods, actually higher in good fat, would be a good dietary recommendation as it relates to the heart, as it relates to the lungs, the joints, the skin, certainly the brain, uh, the immune system, and even in terms of of cancer prevention uh, as well, the immune system. So there can't be a heart smart diet that increases your risk of dementia. Why would you go on any sort of diet that might uh, be detrimental to another uh, system in your body? So You're right. And uh, think about it, though, from the perspective of disconnection syndrome. Those who say, I'm just going to drink this soda because that's what I want to do right now. And I know it has 36 grams of sugar, but I want it and I'm going to drink it. Well, what happens? These uh, choices play out as obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes type 2, which ultimately turns out to be powerful, turn out to be powerful risk factors for bad outcome as it relates to COVID-19. So in a very real sense, people are choosing their response to this infection based upon their lifestyle choices, which are a reflection of the wiring of their brains. Let me jump onto that if that's okay. So on this idea that our refined carbohydrate, high sugar diet may be contributing to something like increased risk for complications of COVID, I think if we reframe this and think about this through the lens of the exposome, about our our life exposures in which COVID is one and how that might then affect our health. You know, if you think about the exposome again, which is the sum total of all the exposures we have in our lives and how that is influenced from basically prenatal period all the way until adulthood. And you think about the idea that as a baby is born, whether it goes through the vaginal canal versus cesarean section, it's going to be colonized with microbes. So that's one of the first exposures. And we know that that will then shape later life outcomes. I talked before about exposure to nature, to farms, and how that might lower a child's risk of developing a condition like asthma. 
And then you think about even things like early life exposure to breast milk and how the exposure to maternal secretory IgA might be helping that infant's gut to be more resilient to problems in the future, both metabolic issues and potentially pathogens like COVID. And so then you think about adult exposures and what are people being exposed to now? Well, we talked about these, and these are things like chronic stress, which we know is going to compromise the immune system. We talked about the foods that we eat, so refined carbohydrates, unhealthy fats, and just generally processed foods that are, again, linked to higher levels of chronic inflammation and then also linked to worsened immune function. And so what that means is when we put it all together, that when we are exposed to something like COVID, you know, it's not all about the pathogenicity of the virus. It's about the substrate. It's about the host and how well we are able to defend against this problem. You know, whether we just have a mild asymptomatic, even infection or have higher risk of developing complications is then a reflection of our prior life exposures. And I think it's such an important point for people to understand because it's directly related to what we talk about in the book as it pertains to decision-making. When a person thinks about a good or a bad choice, they think about that happening at the moment of decision. So if you are in a restaurant and there are two options on the menu and one is a healthy salad and the other one is um, a pizza, let's say, we think about that person needing to make the healthy decision when they sit down, when they're ordering, that's the moment that it matters. But the truth is that most of that decision has already been decided because it's been encoded in that person's brain by the decisions they've made in the past. You can predict how people make decisions when you look at their brains. It's, you know, it sounds kind of novel, but it's really not at this stage. We know that your decision-making is a reflection of your brain function. And we know that your brain function is a reflection of your metabolism. So we know that, for example, inflammation or things like our insulin levels are going to change the way that we make decisions. So the, the parallel that I'm trying to draw here is that as a society, we are fixated on the quick fix. We're trying our best to avoid the problem at the moment of the problem. And as it relates to COVID, that's saying, oh, well, I need to just boost my immune system and that will be sufficient when really the solution to something like COVID as far as mitigating the long-term harms is the same thing that we're talking about for making good decisions, which is investing in long-term full body health, which is brain health, which is heart health, which is good decision-making, which is mental health. It's all the same, but it requires us to think through what it would look like to get upstream. And why that's so important as well is it takes away from this model of blame. It takes away from blaming people for making bad decisions at the point of decision and instead says, well, what are the contributors to that decision in the first place? And so, again, my sense is that the more we can understand the upstream implications of our, our choices, right, that then translate into downstream poor health outcomes, one of which is poor decisions, one of which is higher risk for complications of COVID, one of which is higher rate of mental health issues, then we can get rid of this blame idea and start making solutions available to people that actually help them and that actually translate into societal change. If I could just uh, tie, uh, tie on to what Arjun just said, and you know, this idea of blaming uh, uh, our patients, blaming people for making the wrong decisions. And what we really did our best to bring out in Brainwash is the idea that we need to stop that that we as healthcare providers need to stop playing this blame game because people's brains have been rewired without their consent. 
that media uh, that we are exposed to, that many of the issues I talked about earlier about our modern day world are actively uh, rewiring brains towards uh, impulsive decision making. And so it's not fair to point a finger and say, you know, Mrs. Jones, I gave you that 2088 diet and you didn't follow it. What's wrong with you? Something may be wrong with you. And Mrs. Jones goes home and looks at herself in the mirror and blames herself saying, what's wrong with me? I, I went to the doctor. There must be something wrong. I can't make good decisions. So I think that's actually very valuable. And so I think what Austin and I are trying to say here, and really I think, I think a central theme of our book is that our decision-making is what needs to be focused on before we talk about uh, giving people the right choices to make. So that, uh, for example, Austin and I were invited to work with a group of physicians uh, in terms of how they approach patients with various medical problems, such that we, they work first on the actual decision-making apparatus. For example, patient that you are seeing who has significant uh, problems with weight and perhaps diabetic, at the first visit, you don't give them the diet and the exercise regimen. What you do uh, explore is, let's say, um, their quality and quantity of sleep. Now, that might be a surprise to your viewers right now and certainly to the patient, but that is a very important le lever to pull if we're going to allow people to regain the ability to make good choices. Poor sleep is associated the very next day with increased activity of the amygdala and increased impulsive decisions. And as those decisions relate, for example, to diet, they are profound. They are the wrong choices. So what we're trying to do is set the stage by rewiring the brain for better decision-making and then layer on top what those good decisions are moving forward. Guys, this has just been an amazing conversation. We could probably continue this on forever. As we, as we end here with our wellness wisdom, I'd love it if each one of you could share a pearl about the book you wrote. What was one thing about it that you felt, and David, you really just said it right there pretty much, but I would like to know one pearl in particular that you want to get uh, our, our listeners to take away from this. Uh, well, I, I, let me first say, maybe this is or isn't the pearl, but uh, it, as a life experience writing this book, uh, with our son, you know, I, I would say thus far, it's a once in a lifetime. Maybe we'll write another book together. But uh, to be mentored by your son is a, a great place to be. And uh, it's a great experience. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I would say the pearl would be uh, the real to understanding that there uh, that we have the ability to rewire our brains for empathy, for compassion, for forward thinking, uh, and uh, for better decision-making. And that's, I think, the fundamental message uh, from my perspective that we tried to portray. Well, let me bookend my comments from the start of this and just say that it was such an honor to work on this book with my father and independent of anything that the book did or didn't do, that has been one of the things I'll sure remember for the rest of my life as a major positive. As it relates to the pearl from the book, there's, there's kind of this, this painful but quite obvious truth that came from this, which is when you understand that your decision-making is a reflection of your brain wiring, and then you understand how the modern world has been set up to manipulate that wiring for poor choices, 
things just make sense, right? You, you're not confused by these really high rates of chronic preventable diseases. You're not confused by the fact that people tend to make impulsive decisions, even when you know that those are not the right decisions to make. You're not confused by the level of emotional reactivity that characterizes most people's relationships and is so damaging to those dynamics. When you understand that the wiring of your brain is something that you can take back, that you can then modify yourself and take that out of the hands of people who have no interest in you succeeding in life, then you begin to develop this feeling of re-empowerment uh, that you then get to, I guess, change your destiny, that it doesn't have to be contingent upon the wishes of other people. And to again, echo what my dad had just mentioned, just getting one night of good sleep is an incredible tool to enabling that person to start making those types of good decisions, to enabling that person to start wiring their brain for better choices. So I think it's just, you know, I would implore people to, to think this through, to just explore some of this science, to explore, if you're interested, our book, because I think it's, it's very straightforward when you start to appreciate that if you look at decisions at the moment of action and this whole blame willpower thing, it's just not that helpful. But if you look at them as a reflection of your brain wiring, things will make sense and you'll be able to start making changes that then translate into substantial benefits in your health, both physical and mental health, and just overall quality of, of life. Well, listen, is a, this is a must-read book. I really enjoyed this book. I mean, I've, I review books all the time, and uh, uh, this book is just loaded with vital information that will literally help to save your life. Well, I would like to say thank you to uh, Dr. Sinatra for having us. And, uh, you know, it, just for creating a platform to get out such important information for your viewers or listeners uh, is, you know, it's certainly a job well done. Thanks so much, guys, for coming on the show. That was terrific. That's our show for today, folks. If you have a question or an idea for a show topic, please send us an email or share a post with us on Facebook. And remember, if you like what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, Subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. See you next time.